turn now to Deuteronomy 32, and we'll read the first 43 verses. These are words that, as the previous chapter, the last verse indicates, were spoken by Moses in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel. The words of a song prior to Israel's entrance into the land of Canaan. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth, for my teach. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children, because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up and carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine, the blood of the grapes. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him, and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you were unmindful, and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them, because of the provocations of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no, in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation, for fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts, with the poison of serpents of the dust. 
The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men, had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. So their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining, bond or free, he will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no god besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, As I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with their blo with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries, he will provide atonement for his land and his people. In connection with this uh, this prophecy of, of Scripture, uh, we turn to consider again the first article of the Belgian Confession, Article 1. Article 1, The Only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism that uh, we are by nature inclined uh, to hate God and our neighbor. And it's not hard to imagine that uh, most people hearing such a, a testimony of faith would say, that sounds just totally unrealistic. It sounds exaggerated. Uh, I don't hate God. I don't have uh, anything uh, particularly against against God. 
and uh, that may express their their thoughts and feelings, and it may be thoughts and feelings that they have of God as they choose to think of Him and as they choose to define Him. Uh, but the fact is that uh, though people may think that they have nothing against God, uh, they by nature reject and resist the revelation of who God truly is. You can often hear that when you listen to objections that people raise against the, the Christian faith or even against the existence of of God. And they uh, raise the, the the matter of the problem of suffering, the fact that there are there are starving children in various places of the world, and and it, it appears that uh, that innocent people uh, suffer greatly. And, and how do you reconcile that with the the idea of a of a great and a and a good God? And with respect to uh, issues of right and wrong, of morality and and uh, and expectations of God. Uh, people, especially in our day, rise up at the thought of being judged. And, uh, if you get specific about, about matters of, of lifestyle and morality, immediately people respond with indignation. Who are you to judge me? And that's the response of, of people to, uh, the, the simple testimony as to what the Bible teaches. And that shows the reality of their enmity against God. Uh, the Rome, book of Romans says that the carnal mind, that is the natural mind, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. Neither can it be. In other words, the enmity, the hatred that people have towards God comes to expression in their hatred of His law. By nature, we all have a deeply rooted pride and rebellion against God's rule. And we might be more specific. By nature, we have a, a, a deeply rooted pride and rebellion against God's rules. And to rebel against God's will is to rebel against God himself. And the fact is that every attribute of God, uh, when it's really uh, considered in the light of Scripture, it goes contrary to human pride. And it provokes a negative reaction. And that is especially true of uh, God's justice. God's righteousness that we're considering uh, this evening. In fact, that reaction is so uh, vehement and so deeply rooted that there's only one cure for it. And that's also in, confessed in our Heidelberg Catechism. We are so inclined to hate God as our neighbor. We're so wicked that we're incapable of doing any good in relationship to God's actual will, that we love him and our neighbor as ourselves, unless... Unless we are born again. It's only the new birth that can change people's uh, attitude towards God as he has revealed himself in his word. And to see all his attributes, not only in their greatness, but in their, in their beauty and their attractiveness. To see the justice of God. Yes, as awesome, as frightful in many respects, but also as glorious and attractive no less than his other characteristics. As we love God's mercy, and as we we love his uh, kindness, his justice also is another beautiful color, if you will, to that shines out of that prism of his, his unified and 
glorious character. I think I've used that illustration before, that the various attributes of God might be might be uh, likened to the different colors of a rainbow that appears when the, the brightness of a light shines through a prison. There is a unity to that beauty. It has the same source, but it's a manifold beauty. And so it is with God. In our confession, we, we confess that God is completely just. Uh, the adjective completely or perfectly uh, describes not only his wisdom, but his justice and his goodness. Our God is perfectly just. That's our theme uh, from for this evening. And we're going to be considering this in the light of, of what uh, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 32, this wonder, wonderful declaration of God as one who is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. God is perfectly just. And we begin by considering that God is perfectly just in his punishment for sin. Again, you recall the Heidelberg Catechism that testifies that, yes, despite the fact that God is merciful and his mercy indeed is revealed, yet his mercy does not cancel out his justice in such a way that we can just resort to the thought that God is merciful and he'll just forgive our sins because that's just what he does, is if God can lay his justice aside, God shows mercy in the way of justice. And God's word requires that he punishes sin temporally and eternally. And God even punishes the sins of his elect in some measure on earth. And that's simply to uh, cite the, the language of God's word itself in various places. I have one instance of that in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11 where God indeed promises to save and deliver his people. We've heard that promise even in uh, Deuteronomy 32. Despite the apostasy and the waywardness of Israel, I, our Deuteronomy 32 is a prophecy of what would come in the life of Israel. And indeed, they turned aside from God and they suffered his judgments. But God still saved a remnant. God still saved his people. And we have a similar prophecy in Jeremiah uh, 30 where we read in verse 11, I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. No, God would punish his people for their sin, but that punishment be would be in corrective justice. It would not be complete and full as they deserved. But in measure, they would face the reality that God is just, that they might be humbled by that and learn to treasure his mercy, not with a kind of presumption, but a kind of wonder at his grace. God punishes even his own elect children in a way that is uh, geared to lead them to repentance or sometimes for the sake of a public testimony. Right? We have an example of that in the life of David. David, who committed uh, murder, he murdered Uriah so that he could take his wife. He was guilty of adultery and murder, and he was confronted with his sin, and he repented. He says, I have sinned. And remember that Nathan the prophet said, and the Lord has put away your sin. Immediately he assured him of forgiveness. 
But he said, nevertheless, because you have caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the sword will not depart from your house. And David was sorely plagued with the Lord's discipline in his life. He was humbled by it. But in God's sovereignty, his purpose was to send a testimony to others that it's no slight thing to violate God's commandments. It's no slight thing to abuse uh, the office that David possessed. And God, for his own wise purposes, faced him with many severe consequences for his sins. In this life, though he was forgiven, and even those consequences served for his sanctification and God's purposes of grace. But that doesn't mean that they were easy. You know the life of David. He suffered greatly in the rebellion of Absalom, and then his murder, or his death, murder of Amnon, and on and on it goes. But in God's punishment or correction of his people, uh, it is never a matter of strict justice. In fact, it could be debated whether the word punishment is even most helpful in describing it. Uh, perhaps better to speak of God's discipline and God's correction. There is a punitive element to it. In other words, God shows the consequence of sin, but it is always aimed for the good and sanctification of his people. And it's never according to what we deserve. We hear that also in the, the prayer of, of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 9, this wonderful prayer of confession of sin and repentance. And uh, included in that prayer, Ezra says, You are God have punished us less than our sins deserve. So it's not strict justice. It's not really punitive justice. It is corrective justice. But at the same time, God's children sometimes must feel uh, their their heavenly father's anger against them uh, for their sins. David, in his confession of sin in Psalm 51, says, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me against you, You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David is vindicating God's righteousness in his confession of sin. And he prays that he might again hear joy and gladness. And he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David had experienced the hiding of God's face from David in terms of his manifested favor, while David continued in impenitence. In other words, David was made to feel God's displeasure against him. And sometimes God's children experience the hiding of God's face in the sense that they do not sense his approval and his acceptance. And God has gracious intentions also in that, so that we might acknowledge our sin and turn to him. The point is to lead us to honor the justice of God, even should we feel his heavy hand, as David did, as we read of in in the book of Lamentations, in chapter chapter 3, it says, Why should a living man complain a man for the punishment of his sins? In other words, we live, we deserve death. Why should we be complained, even should we feel God's chastising hand upon us? Rather, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and acknowledged that uh, God had not pardoned them in the sense that they had not yet uh, been assured 
of his favor. And uh, they need to turn to him in genuine repentance that, that they might be restored. So humility before God will lead us to acknowledge his righteousness. And we might say that that's true even regardless of the reasons uh, for suffering or affliction. In other words, we must confess, even when we may experience afflictions that are baffling to us, that we cannot trace to any known cause in our own life and conduct. We must yet confess that God is just and he's fair and he's good. We must acknowledge that he is never unfair. If we feel like we're getting more than our share of hardships, uh, we need to remember what we really deserve. We need to remember that the Lord does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. He has his gracious purposes. Remember our consideration of the changeless God, where Malachi confesses that uh, it is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed because God does not change. And we both honor him when we acknowledge the justice and the goodness of his ways, and that is also the pathway to the assurance of God's grace and favor under affliction. It's interesting when you look at the book of Hebrews, for example, how these Christians, uh, though they were in a place of, of, of temptation, they were being uh, tempted to draw away from uh, their Christian confession and resort back to Judaism. And, uh, and, and they were suffering and they had suffered persecution from their, their Jewish countrymen. And, uh, because of their, their confession and they had joyfully uh, uh, suffered the spoiling of their goods. In other words, they had suffered material loss for the sake of the gospel. And the reality of their faith was uh, affirmed and acknowledged by the writer. And yet he, he treats of the affliction that they were experiencing as the corrective, gracious discipline of their father, which is not joyful, but grievous but after it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. There's no indication that they were being corrected and disciplined for any particular sins or unfaithfulness, but the hardships in which they were suffering were explained in terms of God's sanctifying purpose, that they might be partakers of his holiness more and more. And it's good to realize that and to acknowledge that God's ways are always good. Confess that truth that honors him. God is just, secondly, and this is quite a different topic, but it's related to the justice of God in his dealing with sin. God is just in his punishment of the wicked. How many pages in the Bible, how many chapters, how many verses give attention to this theme? If you read the Bible, I mean the whole Bible, if you read the Old Testament, if you don't skip over the prophets because they're difficult to understand. Yes, they are difficult to understand. And we don't have to understand everything about them in order to benefit from them. But one very important thing that we learn from reading the whole Bible is the greatness of God and the reality of his justice. There is so much devoted to this subject in the word of God, in all parts of scripture, in the historical sections. We see God's threatenings carried out in judgment. In the prophecies, we hear warnings against God's judgment. In the Gospels, how often do we hear our Savior speak of the fire that is not quenched and the worm that never dies, of eternal 
uh, suffering. Jesus spoke of the reality of hell. Are there any epistles that completely ignore this subject, that give no attention to it? Of course, the answer is no. It's a prominent teaching throughout Scripture. I, I took note. I usually put paper clips in my Bible to just refer easily to passages. And it's like, I've got paper clips, uh, paper clips throughout the Bible because throughout the Scripture, there are so many important passages that uh, teach us of God's justice. We read in in, I, uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 32 uh, this this solemn oath that uh, the Lord takes in verse 40. He says, For I raise my hand to heaven and say, As I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall divide. It's like the Lord uses this graphic, frightening imagery to impress upon the readers, the hearers, that God indeed is a God of justice. And he takes an oath by his own existence that he will render punishment to the wicked. Why does he do that? Does God take an oath in order to kind of bolster himself with the sense that, yes, he must keep his word? No, no. The New Testament makes clear that he is a God who cannot lie. There's no need for God to take an oath for himself. And we're also told that God takes oaths in swearing of his covenant promises of grace so that those who have taken refuge in Christ might be assured of those promises. God can swear by no one greater, so he swears by himself that he will bless his people. But why then does God take an oath that he will punish the wicked? Well, it's really for the same reason, but kind of like the opposite, so that people might take him very, very seriously. He doesn't take a, an oath for his own sake, but for the sake of sinners, so that they might believe him and seek refuge in God's mercy and grace in Christ. Why does God take such an oath? And this is not the only place. There's another uh, instance of this. I just came across it after I prepared this sermon in my, my regular reading in the, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 5, where it says, uh, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with your detestable things and with all your abomination, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. And again, that's language that is often repeated in Scripture. I will not have pity. I will not spare. Those are solemn uh, words from God. And they're calculated to bring people to take him very, very seriously. Because God's word is true. He doesn't give empty threats. He doesn't change, yes. And that's of great comfort to those who uh, trust in him. God is merciful also in making abundantly clear that he doesn't just waste words when he speaks words of justice and judgment against those who rebel against him. There is no excuse for people who have the scripture, who have read the word of God. There is no excuse for them if they continue in sin and do not repent and turn to God. And we need to have that constantly reinforced by the whole of scripture, brothers and sisters, because there is precious little in our society that will help us to appreciate this. There is precious little in the justice system under which we live to impress upon people the reality that evil has terrible consequences. 
many crimes for which throughout uh, history uh, the death penalty was executed, crimes of murder, crimes of treason, other horrific activities that destroy lives, they met a death penalty. And that's biblical. That's a testimony to the, to the sanctity of human life. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made him. But now murderers get relatively light sentences. And every kind of crime is excused on the basis of a whole variety of sentimental considerations. Our views and feelings about justice must be formed by God's word and God's character. God doesn't blame society for the, 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 the sins and the crimes of people. God doesn't blame their parents. God doesn't blame their hard life. The soul that sins, it shall die. Each one will bear his own iniquity. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no considerations that factor in the execution of God's perfect judgment. We'll consider that for. But God holds individuals' responsibility for their, their sins. And God doesn't relent. God isn't moved uh, by mere remorse. A lot of people are remorseful. Esau was remorseful. Judas was remorseful. He even confessed his guilt. He says, I betrayed innocent blood. But that, that remorse just led him to hell all the more sooner. Because in his despair, he took his own life. And hell is not a correctional facility. Hell is not aimed at rehabilitation. There's no parole. There's no early release. It's a place of eternal punishment from the presence of the Lord, where the fire is not quenched, to use the repeated language of our Lord Jesus, where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. The worm, the worm that eats rotting flesh, it never dies. That's a vivid picture. It never dies because the sufferer never dies. Eternal punishment is as clearly revealed in Scripture as eternal life must be taken with the utmost seriousness. And also with the conviction that God's judgment is according to truth and to perfect fairness. It's not based upon what might be seen and what others might think or judge. In Romans chapter 2, God's judgment is spoken of as judging the secrets of men. According to the gospel, Christ Jesus. First Timothy 5 verse 24 says that some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. Some sins follow after. Some sins remain hidden in this world. Some of the worst sins may remain hidden in this life. But they will be disclosed. They will come to light. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, uh, the judgment of God is, is described also in those, those same uh, terms. Where Paul says, Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. God's judgment will be according to truth, and his judgment will be according to the measure of light and privilege which people have known in this life. To much has been given, much will be required. That's a that's a very uh, prominent, uh, pervasive theme in Scripture. In the book of Amos, God uh, speaks words of judgment to the surrounding nations of Israel, and then he's like, he's circling, he's circling, and then he zeroes in on Israel. You have I known above all the children of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your sins. If you read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and its description of the apostasy that would take place of, uh, in Israel in years to come, their departure from God is aggravated 
by the riches of God's blessings and mercies that they had experienced as a people whom he had formed and given his word. In Hebrews chapter chapter 10, we find this, uh, this same uh, theme where uh, it says in verse 28, If anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, to forsake the gospel, to enjoy the light of the truth of the way of redemption in Jesus Christ, and to profess it perhaps, and, and perhaps even to participate in, in the signs of God's saving work through the sacraments, and then to turn away from them, to reject them, well, yes, there will be a far worse punishment for those because they had more light and privilege than others. Now, I realize that this is a subject that uh, uh, might might provoke a response that says, oh, this this is so heavy, Pastor. Is this really necessary? Such a negative theme. If we're inclined to think that way, we need to ask ourselves the question, for one thing, is it true? Is, is it the revelation of God in his word? In a, in a way, we might say, the prominence of this theme and the way it's presented in Scripture is really a powerful testimony to the inspiration of the word of God. I mean, who would devise uh, such a teaching that condemns everybody? Who would make up uh, such a... a, a, a a description of an imaginary God before whom the whole human race is condemned under their sin with only one way of deliverance through God's work, through God's provision of a savior. Well, that's so contrary to, to human, uh, inclinations where we're so much inclined to justify ourselves and to exalt man and his abilities and his goodness. The very revelation of God's justice, according to Scripture, is a profound testimony of the truth of the Word of God. But also when we ask the question, why does this receive so much attention in the Word of God? There is a good answer for that as well. It's not because God takes pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that he might turn and live. If God's will was simply to condemn the world, he'd let the world carry on in its wickedness. In fact, that's how Paul describes the prior generations to the coming of Christ. God allowed men to all to go in their own ways. And now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And we might think, wow, those were better days where God wasn't commanding people to repent and placing this burning on. No, no, no. The fact that God commands all men everywhere to repent is an announcement of good news. There is a way of forgiveness and acceptance in Jesus Christ. And it's a great mercy that people should be confronted with the reality of the justice of God because they will confront it in time. How much better to do that in this day? Now is the day of salvation. Now, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Remember that God swore in his wrath that Israel would not enter the land of Canaan. And that's quoted in the New Testament as a warning to believers to hold fast to Christ. Yes, we should hear the overtures of God's mercy and grace, even in the revelation of his punitive justice, so that people might flee the wrath to come. 
and learn his way of acceptance and forgiveness and hope. And that leads us uh, to consider, secondly, that God is just in his justification of sinners for the sake of Christ. Where are the hell and damnation preachers of the day? I know I'm using a nickname that was sometimes given to preachers who preached a lot of hell and damnation. You know, certainly it's possible for preachers to go overboard on that subject and to do it in a harsh way, in a way that is not Christ-centered and intended indeed to extol the riches of God's mercy. That's very possible indeed, but I don't think it's a real big problem nowadays. I think a greater danger is that even the word hell is seldom mentioned in Christian pulpits. It's not taken seriously. Where are the hell and damnation preachers of of the day? Well, they're gospel preachers. Right? Gospel preachers. We might ask rather, where are preachers of the cross of Christ? As to its true significance. As to its true meaning. Yes, the justice of God is is a most serious subject. In some respects, we, we say it's a fearful subject. But you know that the most awesome, if not dreadful display of God's justice is not the doctrine of eternal punishment. It's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It's the doctrine of the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ suffering, the just one, for the unjust. If we grapple with the justice of God, with a mind that is open to Scripture, here is really the most astonishing thing. You might say that the punishment of sinners, though it appears harsh to shallow views of the evil of sin, and though it may appear harsh to shallow views of the greatness of God, there's really no great puzzle to it. It's really simple and rather straightforward. God is holy and just, and he will judge the world by a perfect standard. He is absolutely fair. He doesn't show partiality. He's going to hold everyone accountable to that perfect law of righteousness that we should love him supremely and love our neighbor as ourselves. There's no puzzle here. But Christ was holy, harmless, separate from sinners. He knew no sin. This is the way Paul describes him. And yet, he was made a sin and a curse for us. His eternal Father, whom he always pleased. I always do those things which please the Father, he said. The eternal Father, whom he always pleased. We're told in Isaiah 53 that it pleased him to bruise him. That he made his soul an offering for sin. He put him to grief. Our scripture reading from Deuteronomy 32 ends on this this uh, note, at least uh, the song comes to a conclusion with the words, He will provide atonement for his land and for his people. He will provide a covering, a covering of their sin and guilt. That's a prophecy of Christ. In sending his son to be the propitiation for our sin, God demonstrate his faithfulness and his righteousness and his justice in the way of pardoning mercy and grace, that he might be just without compromise and yet the justifier of those who believe in Jesus, who believe in the eternal Son of God, who willingly in this eternal covenant of redemption 
took our place, was obedient to the Father under his law, made of a woman, subject to all the, the miseries of this life and his weakened uh, condition in our sinful flesh, though he himself was perfect, and suffered the judgment that we deserved in love for us, so that we, the guilty, might be forgiven. God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness in Christ. And you see, brothers and sisters, it's at the cross of Jesus that we see where divine justice and saving love meet. And that's an amazing kind of puzzle. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Yeah, we hear God's justice in his threatenings and in his temporal punishments. And we ought to, to hear that also as God's design to bring sinners uh, to the end of their rope, so to speak. To bring them to the realization, as it says in Deuteronomy 32, that their power is gone. They have no ability to save themselves, to extricate themselves from their guilt, to escape the judgment they deserve, to bring them to despair of themselves so that their ears are open and their heart is receptive to the message of God's saving word, God's saving love in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the only solution. God is just in his justification of sinners for Jesus' sake. And then finally, in closing, God is just in his vindication of the righteous. Justice is a good thing. I think we all, we all operate with that assumption, don't we? We, we are, we're bothered, we're disturbed when we see gross injustice in, 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 uh, uh, in the courts. We recognize that any kind of partiality according to one's status, whether rich or whether poor, based on race, based on other considerations, whether people are in line with the progressive movement or reflective of a more conservative mindset, we recognize that any kind of two-tiered justice system is fundamentally wrong, and we're disturbed by it. And we take a kind of satisfaction in a just sentence that is pronounced and executed against real evildoers. We recognize that a judge who justifies the wicked is not a good judge because his job is to condemn the wicked. As an instrument of the state, the sword is put in his hands in order to punish evildoers and to reward the good. And we, we all recognize that we operate with the, with the assumption that a, a certain fairness and justice is just the way things ought to be. We're bothered when it's not. Justice is good. And God's justice is not an enemy to our salvation. We've already seen that in the fact that he saves sinners in the way of justice. Think of how the book of Romans begins, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is manifested from faith to faith. Paul glories in a gospel in which the righteousness of God is manifested in the way of salvation, in the way of mercy. 
It's that recognition that liberated Martin Luther from a negative view of God as a judge. And he came to realize that, no, the righteousness of God is for me in Christ. The righteousness of God is not my enemy. It's the guarantee of my salvation. Because the righteousness of God has been demonstrated in Jesus Christ. So that I may go scot-free without any fear that somehow God is dishonored by it. No. God's grace and His justice are glorified by it. What a, what a foundation for comfort. The justice of God is not the enemy of faith and Christian comfort. God's justice is on our side in our salvation and also in our vindication. God will completely deliver. God will completely vindicate His people. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. God will set things right. In Revelation chapter 19, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. God has vindicated the cause of the innocent who suffered at the hands of the wicked. Though that suffering was long, God arose in his time. In Second Thessalonians, Paul comforts Christians who are suffering for the sake of, of the gospel. And he boasted of them for their patience and faith and all their perseverance and tribulations that they endure, which is a manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints, in the vindication of their testimony, and the fact that the suffering of the innocent never goes unrequited by a holy God. That's a, that's a theme of eternal celebration. We've already heard it in the 19th chapter of Revelation. We hear the same in the 15th chapter. The redeemed sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Judgments in the way of deliverance. Judgments in the way of vindicating the truth. Judgments in the, in the, in the way of glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, who was despised and murdered and has been rejected and blasphemed down through the centuries. And he will appear in his glory, in his righteousness and vindicate the testimony of his despised people down through the centuries. God's justice is entirely for us in Christ, even to the point that whatever is done for his name will receive a reward of grace. 
That's how the writer of the Hebrews comforts the Christians, that God is not unjust to forget your labor and love, your labor of love, and that you have ministered to the saints. Yeah, they will receive the reward of grace for this evidence of true faith in their lives. Saving justice frees us from guilt, and it saves us to rejoice in our just God and our Savior. In our call to worship, we, we heard a, a call to, to actually uh, shout for joy and just sing, to break forth in song and rejoice. And then it goes on to call all creation to rejoice. And the ultimate reason for this, as we heard in verse 9, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Come, Lord Jesus. Yes, come quickly. Amen.